26.2 miles. You've undoubtedly heard of a marathon. You may have even run one. But ask yourself, who won the Battle of Marathon? Who lost? And what does that have to do with the rise and fall of democracy? I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. This is Demo Crises. Democracy, Demography, and Demoralization. The year was 500 BC, and the mighty Persian Empire was advancing west. King Darius the Great had extended Persian rule westward all the way to Europe's boundaries for the first time, and he thirsted for the riches and glory that would come from conquering the Greeks. In 499 BC, an outpost of Greeks living in present-day Turkey, the Ionians, rebelled against their tyrant and destroyed a prized city in the process. They attracted support from ethnic Greeks across the Aegean Sea, but the Persians crushed them in 494 BC and sold the entire city into slavery. To punish Greece for their actions against him and win yet more slaves and wealth, Darius set his sights on mainland Greece. Athens, meanwhile, was less than a generation removed from launching the civilized world's first democratic experiment. Rising out of the feudal Bronze Age since the 8th century BC, a series of innovative rulers in the 6th century fostered a nascent democracy in which all free adult males with at least one Athenian parent could vote in the assembly, which was held frequently on the hilltop in Athens. A council of 500 citizens, divided evenly among 10 tribes and selected by lot, ran the government operations. Each tribe also elected its leader, who served as both army general and leading politician. This fledgling democracy offered a new and promising form of government, probably better for its citizens than the aristocracy or tyranny that preceded it. However, it was far from certain that democracy would solve all of Athens' problems, such as defense against the Persians or the equally formidable Spartans, an oligarchy of fierce warriors immediately to the south. In 490 BC, Darius's nephew landed with a huge Persian army at Marathon, about 26 miles from Athens. The Athenians faced an existential decision. Fight or surrender. The assembly voted to fight. Outnumbered two to one, the Athenian foot soldiers quickly moved through the mountains and surprised the Persians with a charge concentrated on their flanks, even though it left them thin in the middle, and to the surprise of many, they scored a stunning victory. Legend has it that after the victory, an Athenian runner named Pheidippides ran the approximately 26 miles from Marathon to Athens, yelled, We have won! in Greek, of course, in the town square and then collapsed and died. The Battle of Marathon gave the Greeks almost euphoric confidence in their place in the world and their new form of government. Within Athens, a brilliant general named Pericles rose to the fore of Athenian democracy, continually earning the confidence of his people as he shepherded Athens into a golden age. As wealth poured in from allies and conquered cities alike, Athenian life achieved splendor in every facet of life. 
Pericles' leadership from 461 to 431 fostered the flourishing of art, sculpture, and architecture, epitomized by the Temple of Zeus or Athena's Parthenon. Playwrights such as Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides wrote hundreds of plays and poems that pushed the envelope of drama and social commentary. Herodotus became the world's first historian, recording Persian wars for posterity. Hippocrates studied medicine on the island of Kos. Large juries of hundreds of men voted to decide court cases. Perhaps most famously of all, the philosopher Socrates began asking questions about the purpose of life, what constituted justice, and how to construct an ideal city. The Greeks had many reasons to believe they had found the perfect system of government. However, perhaps Socrates asked too many questions and gave too few answers. Without a common enemy to unite the Greeks, internal divisions festered between the city-states, most prominently between longtime rivals Athens and Sparta. Petty trade disputes and shifting alliances led to occasional military confrontations during the middle of the 5th century. Eventually, a Spartan ally attacked an Athenian ally, and the Peloponnesian War began. The Peloponnesian War devastated both sides, but it devastated Athens more. A plague of what was probably typhoid fever killed perhaps a third of Athens' population, including Pericles and his two sons. Important neologisms entered the Greek discourse, such as the first appearance in 424 BC of the word demagogue, which means exactly what it means today. That democracy and demagogue derive from the same root is no coincidence. After fighting to a fragile peace in 421 BC, a demagogue named Alcibiades arose in Athens. A charismatic, flamboyant, ambitious relative of Pericles, he believed his future glory was contingent on the disintegration of the fragile peace. And he saw his chance when a delegation arrived from long off Sicily to ask for military assistance against a Spartan ally in return for the prospect of great wealth. After a fierce debate in the Athenian assembly, the Athenians voted to fight, but only by narrow majority. Many wise men, including Socrates and a respected general named Nicias, had argued against it. Nevertheless, Alcibiades persuaded the mob and sailed west in 415 BC with a huge force of 264 ships and 25,000 men, accompanied by Nicias who hoped to keep Alcibiades' rashness in check. He was soon disappointed and killed. The Athenians discovered that their ally, was weak and poor and that the opponent was strong. The fighting went badly and Alcibiades was recalled to stand trial, but instead he escaped and defected to arch-rival Sparta. Tens of thousands of reinforcements came from Athens, and in 413, Sparta scored a decisive victory. At least 40,000 Athenian men were killed or sold into slavery. Thucydides writes simply, quote, All was lost. Ships, men, everything. For the next ten years, the battle raged between Athens and Sparta. Athens convulsed in internal revolutions, abolishing democracy for a year, then restoring it, until finally Sparta won a final battle in 404 and defeated Athens completely. 
The glory of Athenian democracy thus lasted less than a hundred years, from the Battle of Marathon in 490 to the defeat in the Peloponnesian War in 404. It would soon add insult to injury. In 399, angry Athenians sought a scapegoat, and three notorious men roused the mob against Socrates. Although he had argued against the Sicilian expedition, they charged him with corrupting the youth of Athens ostensibly since he had been Alcibiades' teacher, but more likely because he annoyed the masses by repeatedly making them look foolish. His trial lasted less than one day. Despite a spirited defense, he lost the jury's vote, again by narrow majority, perhaps 30 votes out of 500. After some posturing, he was sentenced to death. And so... The world's first century of democracy ended in cataclysmic military defeat and the murder of history's greatest philosopher, both by narrow majority votes. The failures of Athenian democracy demonstrate that majority votes can sometimes produce disastrous decisions. Athenian democracy and voters were at fault for both the Sicilian expedition and the murder of Socrates. These examples, and democracy's many failures since then, demonstrate that there is nothing magical about democracy that makes it produce continually positive outcomes. After all, democracy is simply governance by opinion rather than knowledge. Socrates' prized pupil, Plato, who lived through these disasters, therefore recorded for posterity a searing and fundamental critique of democracy. In his masterpiece, The Republic, Plato uses reason and observation to propose an ideal structure of government. In ancient Greece, there were many independent city-states with many different forms of government so that Plato and Socrates could draw conclusions from a sort of natural experiment. Plato identified five different types of government democracy placed a pathetic fourth best in his hierarchy. First place, and the only truly positive construction for Plato, belonged to an aristocracy of enlightened and benevolent rulers who underwent continuing education until age 50, were continually scrutinized for their fitness for the important office they would eventually hold, and removed if necessary. Without delving into Plato's philosophy too much here, suffice it to say that Plato did not believe most people had the capacity to be rulers. He says of the selection for the class of philosopher kings, quote, It would be absurd to choose anyone but the ones who have knowledge. While this was Plato's preferred form of government, he was too cynical about human nature to believe it could last indefinitely. Even if humans were able to construct such an ideal republic, he laments, quote, Everything that comes into being must decay. Not even a constitution such as this will last forever. It, too, must face dissolution. End quote. It would be dissolved when the philosopher kings, quote, Beget children when they ought not to do so. End quote. Seems like Plato believes in family planning and the second law of thermodynamics. Disturbingly, he describes a path of decay that eerily foreshadows the current decline to and from democracy in the United States in the 21st century. Once dissolution begins, Plato believed that the Republic would descend through five forms of government, eventually ending in tyranny. First, the enlightened aristocracy would have too many children at the wrong time, fight amongst themselves, and give way to timocracy, 
which means government by the honorable or property owners. Timocracy then naturally descends into oligarchy when a wealthy few control everything. Oligarchy essentially describes the United States since the 1980s when the top 1% of earners began to pocket most of the new wealth and control nearly all political decisions. Oligarchy then gives way to democracy, which Plato describes too eerily for those of us who just lived through Donald Trump's election. Here's how Plato describes the decline from oligarchy to democracy. The city has changed from oligarchy to democracy because of its insatiable desire to attain what it has set before itself as a good, namely the need to become as rich as possible. Since those who rule in the city do so because they own a lot, I suppose they're unwilling to enact laws to prevent young people who had no discipline from spending and wasting their wealth, so that by making loans to them secured by the young people's property and then calling these loans in, they themselves become even richer and more honored. It is impossible for a city to honor wealth, and at the same time for its citizens to acquire moderation. Because of this neglect, and because they encourage bad discipline, oligarchies not infrequently reduce people of no common stamp to poverty. And these people sit idle in the city, I suppose with their strings and weapons, some in debt, some disenfranchised, some both, hating those who've acquired their property, plotting against them and others, and longing for a revolution. The moneymakers, on the other hand, with their eyes on the ground, pretend not to see these people, and by lending money, they disable any of the remainder who resist, exact as interest many times the principal sum, and so create a considerable number of drones and beggars in the city. Then as a sick body needs only a slight shock from outside to become ill, and is sometimes at civil war with itself even without this, so a city, in the same condition, needs only a small pretext, to fall ill and fight with itself, and is sometimes in a state of civil war even without any external influence. And I suppose that democracy comes about when the poor are victorious, killing some of their opponents and expelling others, and giving the rest an equal share in ruling under the constitution, and for the most part, assigning people to positions of rule by lot. In summary, the oligarchy, with all their money, exploit the poor masses so extensively that the masses eventually revolt against them. Of course, the next step in Plato's descent is for democracy to eventually become so chaotic that it gives way to tyrannical despotism. Now, it's true that democracy has some benefits. Winston Churchill would certainly retort to Plato his famous dictum that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. As noted democracy critic Jason Brennan says, quote, Democracy is positively correlated with a number of important outcomes, and this appears to be not mere correlation, but causation. Democracies do a better job of protecting economic and civil liberties than non-democracies, and democracies tend to be richer than non-democracies, end quote. But just because Churchill has a pithy quote doesn't make him right. What should matter to us today is whether democracy is good enough for our current challenges. In light of recent democratic failures, that question at least deserves honest examination. Performing better than tyranny does not equate to the best possible or even an adequate form of government. 
Some political theorists advocate what's known as the democratic peace theory, described by President George W. Bush in 2004 as the self-evident truth that, quote, democracies don't go to war against each other, end quote. Unfortunately, exceptions prove this wrong as an absolute law, such as the frequent small-scale wars between Israel and Lebanon or between Pakistan and India or in the Balkans, but it may generally be true in an international sense. Furthermore, civil wars break out within democracies too frequently most notably the American Civil War, by far the bloodiest war in American history with 650,000 dead. President Bush was willing to subject his faith in democracy to rigorous empirical testing when he imposed democracy on Iraq in 2004, only to see it quickly succumb to a tragic civil war with 500,000 dead and unspeakable atrocities. Many African democracies have widespread tribal violence during elections. For example, the 2007 Kenyan crisis or the 2011 Nigerian crisis. And even if democracy does decrease the chance of conflict, it has not held up when needed most. Nefarious actors simply seize power and abolish democracy and proceed to wage awful wars. Hitler's Germany, Napoleonic France, and Nigeria's Biafran War all followed this pattern. Democratic proponents might protest the above examples and assert that when they use the word democracy, they of course mean multi-party pluralistic republicanism that respects human rights, the rule of law, and universal suffrage. And herein lies the point. The word democracy is overly general, simply reflecting the casting of votes, and therefore merits neither status as an end in itself nor even Churchill's pithy but pitiful defense. All of the following countries today are nominally democracies. Russia... Hungary, Turkey, Iraq, Ethiopia, Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, and Venezuela. Life is lousy in all of them, with violence, corruption, or both widespread. Depressingly, the current illiberalism infecting each of these followed decades of promising governmental reforms. For example, when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, Moscow Mayor Boris Yeltsin was elected president of Russia in a reasonably free and fair election. His incompetent governance caused such chaos that Russia defaulted on its debt in 1998, causing an economic crisis, and alcoholism and injection drug use reached depressing levels, the HIV virus spread, and life expectancy declined when it was rising almost everywhere else. Democracy also failed recently in Venezuela when they elected the clownish populist Hugo Chavez to the presidency in 1998. His irresponsible public spending was tenable while oil prices boomed, but when they collapsed in 2015, inflation skyrocketed, and Venezuelans today suffer from hunger, chaos, and violence in a once wealthy country. Democracy in Iraq, Russia, and Venezuela was calamitous deserving not reverence, but sober reflection. Many in the West today falsely assume that democracy, like capitalism, acts as an invisible hand that produces continually improving outcomes. On the contrary, the details of democracy make all the difference. What matters is not whether votes are cast quadrennially, but also everything else. This brings us to the United States. The world's most powerful country today flails in the cesspool of democratic fallibility. This podcast will not discuss President Donald Trump extensively. He has already invaded our daily lives far more than merits either his moral quality or his level of interestingness. He is, in fact, 
and extremely uninteresting man. He is a petty, small, ignorant, narcissistic, sociopathic, and frankly evil man, with talents to be sure, but none that appeal to our better angels or expand our possibilities. His talents are mainly the ability to con others, to suspend all constraints of conscience, to brand, to entertain, to lie, and to pollute, and that's pretty much it. He lacks any productive qualities. In business, he filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy six times. The most nauseating con came when he took his company, Trump Hotels and Casino Resorts, public in 1995. Despite the economic boon of the 1990s, his company lost money every year, exceeding $100 million in losses annually by 1999. He eventually went bankrupt in 2005 and shareholders lost everything. He then created a reality show where he was mainly famous for being cruel and humiliating towards people in the middle of fake business ventures. Somehow, people kept tuning in. In sum, his adult life was a lesson in the rewards that remit to those who take advantage of human frailty. Unfortunately, those skills strike right at the Achilles heel of democracy. As everyone knows, Trump squeaked out a narrow majority in the states where it mattered, leveraging unprecedented levels of cruelly stupidity and tribalism. He has since proceeded as president to validate each of his critics' worst fears, exacerbating nuclear tensions, trade wars, climate change, race relations, allied relations, and so much else. That is as much as I'm willing to devote my breath to him or to waste your time on him. However, we should take stock of what his election means in the context of democracy's decline that a man of his moral bankruptcy holds the same office as George Washington, Abe Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt. In short, while Americans today prefer to reassure themselves that we will soon awake from this nightmare, history suggests we should not indulge the drug of unfounded optimism. Since the time of Socrates and Alcibiades, through Andrew Jackson to Hitler, Hugo Chavez, and Trump, democracy has frequently succumbed to talented and amoral demagogues, and what followed was even worse than their vile words. So should we try something else? For me, and for anybody with a cursory reading of history, any system that elects Donald Trump to its leadership is by definition fundamentally flawed. Furthermore, his election is far from the United States' only recent democratic failure. Congress today fails to address almost all of our mounting challenges. Healthcare is overhauled, then repealed on a purely partisan basis. News channels spout partisan propaganda rather than facts. Our $21 trillion debt and climate change mount, while ideologues and idiots on left and right deny their importance. Miserable politicians win democratic elections, and the good ones have to leave. Just for example, it is a tragedy that Republican Senators Jeff Flake from Arizona and Bob Corker of Tennessee chose not to seek re-election this year. They have staunchly conservative voting records and ideology and would probably win re-election against a Democrat, but they decided not to run for re-election when they realized they could not win their respective Senate primaries. Why? Because the Republican base loathes them for occasionally standing up to Donald Trump's flagrantly disgusting and destructive behavior. The problem doesn't stop at primary voters. Most Americans today are deeply ill-informed. Just for example, 73% of Americans do not know what the Cold War was about. 
40% do not know who he fought in World War II. During the height of the Iraq conflict in 2006, 60% of Americans couldn't find Iraq on a map, and half couldn't even find Mississippi right after Hurricane Katrina leveled it. The movie Idiocracy, starring Luke Wilson, about a democracy of voters without sufficient knowledge to wield their vote responsibly, debuted coincidentally the same year. I know she's bad right now, with all that starving bullshit, and the dust storms, and we running out of french fries and burrito coverings. Yeah. But I got a solution. That's what you said last time! It's worth seeing, in our context. If someone doesn't know what the Cold War was about, do we really want them having a say over foreign or economic policy? Or who should be president? Is current American democracy really the best we can do? The answer to that question is obviously not. Although the preferred solutions will vary widely across our political spectrum. This is the central question we will address in this episode. Given the failings of modern American democracy and historical antecedents of great societal collapse, can we really afford to maintain the status quo? Given democracy's sacred status, you're probably already a little uncomfortable with this question. To resolve this conundrum, let's review exactly how and why the American system was designed. The United States is not a democracy, but a republic, and a complex one, designed with Plato's Republic in front of mind. The Founding Fathers designed our government this way because they understood democracy's history. Most of the United States Constitution contains complexities with the express purpose of limiting the damage that human nature could do when given the right to vote while still hoping to set free the better angels of our nature. Hamilton and Madison, among others, outlined their concerns about democracy within the Federalist Papers in the 18th century. In these documents, our Founding Fathers laid bare their understanding of democracy's past and potential failings. They grappled with Madison's concern that, quote, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths, end quote. They included checks and balances as necessary means by which, quote, the excellences of Republican government may be retained and its imperfections lessened or avoided, end quote. That's Alexander Hamilton. All of the complexities of our Constitution, the checks and balances, the different terms of office, were all designed to quell democracy's lesser tendencies. Across the Atlantic, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant agreed. In Perpetual Peace, a short treatise on how to achieve the eponymous goal, he writes, quote, The form of government is either republican or despotic. Republicanism is the political principle of severing the executive power from the legislature, whereas democracy, in the proper sense of the word, is of necessity despotism. Concerns about America's future democracy continued throughout the Republic. Isaac Asimov bemoaned in the 1980s that the strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life nurtured by the false notion that democracy means, quote, my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge, end quote. In 1920, American satirist H.L. Mencken echoed these concerns, saying, quote, democracy is a pathetic belief in the collective wisdom of individual ignorance, end quote. He felt that the failure of democracy would eventually lead to a Trump-like figure. Quote, 
The larger the mob, the harder the test. In small areas, before small electorates, a first-rate man occasionally fights his way through, carrying even the mob with him by force of his personality. But when the field is nationwide, the fight must be waged chiefly at second and third hand, and the force of personality cannot so readily make itself felt. Then all the odds are on the man who is, intrinsically, the most devious and mediocre. The man who can most easily, adeptly disperse the notion that his mind is a virtual vacuum. The presidency tends, year by year, to go to such men. As democracy is perfected, the office represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. We move toward a lofty ideal. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. End quote. The United States at its founding was a timocracy, as defined by Plato, where only landowners could vote. Plato considered this the second best form of government. When the vote was extended to all white males after the contested election of 1824, the situation worsened just as Plato and Hamilton might have predicted. The first president elected by universal white male suffrage, Andrew Jackson, was a populist, demagogue, and quite frankly, a mass murderer. He also happens to be Trump's hero. In 1830, Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, allowing the U.S. president to negotiate, with the help of the army, with the Native Americans to get them to give up their land and move west of the Mississippi. The Supreme Court found this flagrantly unconstitutional by a vote of 5 to 1. And Andrew Jackson famously ignored the decision, saying, well, Chief Justice Marshall made his decision, now let him enforce it. Since it's the president's job to execute laws and Supreme Court decisions... Marshall's ruling was ignored. Jackson sent the army to forcefully remove Southern Native Americans from their land via the Trail of Tears, even though many of them had already assimilated into American society. Perhaps 80,000 Cherokee, Choctaw, Muscogee, Chickasaw, and Seminole had their land stolen and given directly to Jackson's voters. Over 10,000 Indians died en route to Oklahoma in one of the worst genocides of history. The state names of Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Delaware, all Native American words, echo with the memory of Native Americans who once lived there. The extension of democracy served the majority, but enabled one of the great crimes of American history. It has taken a little more than two centuries for American democracy to descend to this miserable point, fulfilling the bleak predictions of people who knew better. Today, the United States has at least temporarily become a cacistocracy, a 17th century word meaning government run by the worst, least qualified, and most unscrupulous citizens. If you don't already believe this, then no amount of data will convince you, so I won't bother. And history should remind us that the situation can still get even worse. Although doom is not preordained, neither is spontaneous reversal towards a positive trajectory. Senator John McCain often jokingly reminds audiences of the words of Chairman Mao, quote, It's always darkest before it's totally black. It's always darkest before it's totally black. Donald Trump may yet succeed in his authoritarian ambitions just as other demagogues of the past did. 
And even if he fails, other sociopaths have surely learned from his success and will follow his example. He and his ilk are stress-testing the pillars of republicanism instituted by Hamilton and Madison on the advice of Plato and Kant intentionally to resist the rise of just such a person. This therefore invokes a yet unanswered question. Will the pillars of American democracy naturally thwart the existential threat posed by Trump? Or do we alive today have to do something in order to save our society? So what can we do that is better? Surely the first rule of reform should come from Hippocrates. First, do no harm. There are certainly changes that could make our situation worse. But Georgetown professor Jason Brennan has proposed some credible solutions. In our next episode, we'll talk to Dr. Brennan about his brave new proposal for fixing democracy, a novel but slight modification to our existing system, which he calls epistocracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo.